welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. This podcast, hosted by Kate Agnew and Marie Ferguson, will empower you to realize your professional dreams by giving you access to our global community of dietitians. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we'll educate you, inspire you, and help you create more impact as a dietitian. Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast. My name is Kate Agnew, and today we're speaking with Talia Cicchelli, who is an Australian-born registered dietitian and nutritionist working in London. And Talia specializes in eating disorders and currently works both in private practice and in London's leading private mental health hospital in the specialist eating disorders unit. Um, This is a really timely conversation as well, because at the time of recording this podcast, we're not far from National Eating Disorders Awareness Week, which is taking place at the end of Feb. Um, So Talia, welcome to the show. And I so appreciate you sharing your time and wisdom with us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Kate. It's a pleasure to come on. So it turns out, Talia, that I have so many questions for you and so does um, the Dietitian Connection audience and also your audience. <laughs> <laughs> I know, we've had to make a, a few calls, haven't we? <laughs> Yeah, for um for our listeners, Talia and I both put out uh, a call out on our Instagrams for you to submit your questions. Um, you might have seen that, and um, boy, we were quite inundated. So um, <laughs> we're gonna try and answer as many as possible. Um, and it might not be all of the questions verbatim. Um, but we have sort of clumped them into themes, haven't we, Talia? Yeah, yeah. I think we'll we'll do our best to cover them. And I think it's just great to to see that interest from our community in this area. Totally. And we get a lot of questions about working in eating disorders as well, just sort of day to day through Dietitian Connections. Mm-hmm. So I'm really excited to talk to you and um, hopefully give a lot of dietitians who listen to this podcast background into the work you do and also, you know, a little bit about what that looks like. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So Talia, before we get into the specifics of your kind of life-changing work, um, I'd love to hear a bit more about your story and why you decided to become a dietitian. Yeah, of course. So I have known that I've been, yeah, I've known that I've wanted to be a dietitian since I was 15, which is pretty incredible. So I played representative netball as a teenager and we had a sports dietitian come and speak to us. And I just remember walking out of her talk thinking that that was such a cool job to be able to talk about food and sport. Um, and yeah, so I like went home, researched how to become a dietitian, um, used the sort of career week at school to shadow a dietitian at the local hospital and in private practice, and then um, applied to study at Wollongong University for an uh, undergraduate degree, so a Bachelor of Nutrition and Dietetics. And that's where I studied for four years. And then in terms of my journey from this, I was really fortunate to grab one of the new graduate roles in Sydney and start working full time only a couple of months after graduating in a clinical role. And I worked the first few years just in aged care, rehabilitation, sort of general medical, surgical areas like a lot of new graduates do. And then the opportunity arose that I worked in pediatrics um, and I had a, a short sort of locum position, which then led me to work at one of the larger pediatric teaching hospitals. And on the very first day that I worked there, um, I was given the caseload to work on the eating disorders unit. Um, so that was really a stepping stone into my, um, my specialty area, working in mental health and eating disorders. And that led me to to then work in um, adults. So just before I moved over to the UK, I had a few different jobs. So I worked part-time at the Butterfly Foundation. Uh, I was working part-time on an inpatient eating disorders unit in Sydney, and then also part-time in a New South Wales health role in the community setting, supporting people with eating disorders in the community. And and how did you come to be a dietitian um, working in London? Yeah, so when I was at university, I travelled over to Europe and spent a week in London and I fell in love with it and 
So I was 21 at the time and I just told myself, I'm going to come back and work here one day. So it took me about seven years to get there, but the timing was finally right. And yeah, I moved over here two and a half years ago. And it's, I'd spoken to a lot of dietitians that had worked over here before, but I think for me, I'd, I'd always wanted to have the opportunity to travel a bit more. And there just seemed to be a lot of opportunities in London in terms of, you know, a dietetic career, um, especially with the ability to work in different locum roles, which is not really available in Australia. So when I first moved over here, I had, uh, I think, three or four different locum positions. Uh, and that, yeah, that was like a year and a half of just changing hospitals, being able to travel in between. And then I got a, a permanent part-time job um, in one of the hospitals in London. Um, and now they've, they've since sponsored me to stay here for, for longer than my original visa. That's really good. That's fabulous. Yeah. Congrats. <laughs> Thank you. Did you get to enjoy the working traveling dynamic before COVID hit? I did. Yeah, I, I did. The first two years, I must say, I fit quite a lot in. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, yeah, I have to ask you, how is life at the moment in the UK? You're in lockdown at the moment. Um, yeah. Are you getting through? Okay. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. It's been tough this lockdown. So this is our third lockdown now. And, you know, to think that we've spent more than half of the last sort of 11 to 12 months in some state of lockdown or semi-lockdown, um, I think it's getting to, yeah, quite a few people now, but I'm just trying to take it day by day. And I think, you know, for me, especially working in eating disorders, you know, sadly, there's been such a huge demand for services. So, you know, I have been blessed in that I've been quite busy with work, but also sadly, that means that a, a lot of people are struggling. Mm. Do you think um, disordered eating has potentially become worse over the last year? 100%. Yeah, mm. mm-hmm. definitely. I know we're going to talk about your um, your challenge that you're running on your Instagram a little bit later, so I'm, I'm keen to, to dive in a bit more then because I imagine that was a big help to a lot of uh, people in lockdown and isolation. Yeah, yeah, we can touch on that definitely. So, well, to that note then, um, can you tell us a bit more about the current, like your current roles that you have and what your work week and patient load looks like? I I imagine you're very busy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It is a little bit of a juggle. So at the moment I'm working part-time in, um, so one of, yeah, London's uh, psychiatric hospital. So I'm the sole dietitian working on the inpatient eating disorders unit. So it's an adult ward. Um, so I'm there three days a week. And then on the other two days I work in for myself. So I've got my private practice. That's my freelance role um, where I see clients for one-to-one consultations. And then I also do, you know, a little bit of um, corporate work and um, brand collaborations. Um, so yeah, a typical week I'm sort of juggling between the two, but in terms of client loads at the hospital, I'm mostly working with people that have anorexia nervosa or bulimia nervosa. Um, and then in my private practice, it's, it's a bit of a mixed bag. So I see people from, um, you know, that are, are struggling with all types of eating disorders or, or people that are just wanting to improve their relationship with food. So people that have, you know, experienced years of, of dieting, um, and yeah you know, obsessive eating, um, unhealthy relationship with not only food, but their exercise and their bodies as well. Mm. Um, so I was hoping actually that we could cover the kind of four types of eating disorders. So could you remind us about those? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So eating disorders are diagnosed using the DSM-5, which is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual. And there's sort of four main eating disorders. So most people would have heard of anorexia nervosa, bulimia bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorder. And then the fourth sort of main one encompasses a whole, lots of a a spectrum of of how someone eats. So that's OSFED. So it's other specified feeding and eating disorders. So basically that encompasses um, any sort of eating issue that doesn't fit or meet the criteria for anorexia nervosa, 
bulimia nervosa or binge eating disorder. So within OSFED, you might see um, or you might hear of the terms of like atypical anorexia nervosa or ARFID, which is avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. Um, if someone presents with like orthorexia, that would fit in there too, mm-hmm. because what we know, um, so orthorexia doesn't, it isn't actually included in the current diagnostic criteria for eating disorders, but it's starting to become more, um, it's, yeah, it's more recognized now. So that would fit into that sort of OSFED category. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I know orthorexia, there's been a lot of conversation yeah. about it over the last few years. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, I think for those that don't know, orthorexia is really, it's an obsession with clean eating. So we're seeing yes. that on the rise um, just from, you know, the diets that are out there, diet culture, um, you know, fitness programs. Um, Fitzbo, hey. Yeah, Fitzbo, <laughs> yes. Yes, Fitzbo. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned was it anorexia nervosa and bulimia is what you see most commonly? Yeah, so I'd see those most commonly on the inpatient unit, mm-hmm. um, being that, you know, people will come in for an inpatient admission, you know, mostly when they're very unwell and their physical health is unstable. Um, in saying that, though, there have also been people that have had um, binge eating disorder and other diagnoses, but definitely in my private work, I think, yeah, I, I see a mixture, but majority of the people I work with wouldn't actually meet diagnostic criteria for an eating disorder. These are people that have an unhealthy relationship with food um, or binge eating disorder would be yeah, the most common. Mm-hmm. Do you see um, like uh, an equal pattern between both your inpatient and your private practice um, or do you see like a different type of eating disorder more commonly in, in the community and your private practice? Yeah, I, I definitely see a, a division. So, mm. yeah, um, because I'm working so in my private practice um, because the clients that I work with, um, their, their physical health is stable, um, I tend to see, yeah, people that are just wanting to improve their relationship with food, whereas in the hospital it's definitely more anorexia and bulimia. Mm-hmm. Um. Switching to a bit more around your private practice, um, so I understand your team is expanding. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, yeah. So I, when I, the first two years I was working over here, I was working um, underneath a nutritionist. Um, but then about two weeks ago, as we we're recording this podcast, I decided to take the leap of faith and go out on my own and open my own clinic. I'll be virtually at the moment. Um, and because of the pandemic and the demand for eating disorder services, I think that's what really pushed me because towards the end of last year, I was had a waiting list, a, you know, a huge waiting list and, you know, working in eating disorders, the turnover of our clients is really slow because recovery is a very long process. So I'm, you know, I'm not working with someone for one or two sessions. I'm working with them for, you know, one to two years. So, you know, realistically, when you calculate that, um, the waiting list continues to grow and, and I can't take on any more new clients. So I decided to advertise for another freelance dietitian and I'm in the process of hiring them now, which is really exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Congrats. That's um, thank you. Yeah, really exciting. Look forward to seeing how that journey plays out. Yeah. Thank you. I definitely, it's going to be a, a steep learning curve. Um, I don't think you realize when you go into private practice and start to grow your business, how many things there are in the background that you need to, mm. to organize. But one thing you seem to do well, Talia, is um, still be able to maintain your presence on um, Instagram and um, your website and kind of give, give back to the community through those mm. initiatives, don't you? It's very impressive. I, <laughs> I do try. And I think that, you know, showing up for the community is really what fuels my fire. That's what keeps me going. Yeah, well, I'm, well, we mentioned the food rule challenge. It's probably a mm. great time to talk about it because I actually joined it um, a couple of weeks ago and I thought it was a really meaningful initiative that you were running. Um, also, how you can eat so calmly on live Instagram with people is... <laughs> 
<laughs> and I know you've had um, really positive feedback from dietitians about that as well. So yeah, I'd love to hear more about it. You know, what was the kind of impetus behind it? And um, yeah, why did you start it? Well, and, and also maybe, you know, what was the feedback like? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So we know that January 1st, everyone is thinking about going on another diet and it was like December 30th and I was like you know what like this is ridiculous why do you know the people in my community have to see all of this diet talk on social media and I was like I just want to change the conversation and I want to do something that's going to support my community at such a really tough time of the year we'd just gone into lockdown in London um, and so I came up with this idea of doing a 30-day fear food uh, challenge. So every day during January, I showed up on Instagram um, and ate with my community um, something that, you know, I know is is a, a challenge for a lot of people that struggle with their relationship with food. So um, we covered, yeah, all sorts of things from bananas to milky coffees to cake to pasta. Um, and it was, yeah, it was incredible. I didn't I didn't think that I would get the response that I did, which really shows how many people needed that support at this time. Um, and it was, yeah, it was something that I looked forward to every day because I ended up building this, you know, this really tight knit group or community um, who've now actually gone on and created their own Facebook page together to continue to support e each other after wow. the challenge, which is amazing. Um, so yeah, the feedback I got was, um, was really positive. Um, and as you mentioned, not just from, the people that were participating from my community, but I had quite a few dietitians contact me as well, just through DMs to say like they'd even enjoyed watching the lives because they had learnt things about eating disorders and how to talk and engage to people who have an eating disorder um, through the lives. And yeah, so I didn't actually expect that that, that would come from the challenge either. Mm. I think one of um, the reflections I had after tuning in was, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I imagine that for um, individuals with disordered eating, there is a lot of stress around mealtime and you were mm. very calm and present and um, open. Yeah, yeah, it can be really stressful. And for a lot of people and especially the, you know, the members of the community that joined the challenge, said that it was just so reassuring to see someone who had a normal relationship with food eat because often what's available online is that, you know, people show their, you know, what I eat in a day or they show snapshots or highlights of what they're eating. And generally people are showing a very healthy version of what they're eating. Um, and so it can be really confusing, especially when you're trying to improve your relationship with food, because there's no, you know, there's, I guess, limited role models out there online showing what a normal relationship with food looks like and what, you know, even a normal pace of eating, how much butter to put on bread, that like these things just aren't available to people. And I think doing this challenge really made me realize that there is such a need for this, um, which is why I'm now working on food challenge 2.0 and I'm going to, yeah, I'm thinking about how to make this bigger and better and try to reach more people and just continue to grow this, you know, service that I can offer because I think it's something that hasn't really been done before, which is exciting. Wait, yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and like, yeah. Um, awesome idea. Yeah. So congrats on all the, the great feedback and the, and the, the change it seemed to have created the impact it made. Yeah. It's, I, the the I'm still sort of speechless thinking about it because because people are still sending me photos um, of you know the foods that they've had you know I've had so many messages Kate of people saying that you know like literally like their life has changed and they that they've started the new year fresh and that they just didn't think that they would be in this position so it's yeah it's it's really moving to have been you know a part of that and this is why I love working in this area is because of the impact that you can make on mm. someone's life and this kind of um it got me thinking we had a dietitian in our community submitted questions um around she she asked how do you bring about behavior change which is sustainable in individuals with disordered eating and this sounds like potentially maybe one of the tools that 
can be used to facilitate treatment in a way? Yeah, I think with eating disorder recovery, it is about repetition. It is about trust. It is about experimenting. So a lot of the time, what I'm really helping my clients to do is to build up a new evidence base, a new way of learning, a new belief system when it comes to food. And that can be through yeah, through challenging. So especially with fear foods, it's that repetition of challenging that fear and breaking down the food rule associated with a way of eating or, or a particular food in general. And just being there and guiding someone through that is is really important. So it is a, it is about behavior change and it's about taking really small, yeah, sustainable steps and thinking long-term. Mm. Another question that comes up a lot is um, around recovery and is it, um, is it possible for individuals to fully recover from an eating disorder? Mm. Um, what are your kind of experiences around this and I don't know, what, are the, what are the stats or what do you see? Yeah, I, get, I also get this, this question all the time, both from dietitians and people in the community. And we know from the research that it is absolutely 1000% possible to recover from an eating disorder. Um, we know that early intervention is more successful. So if we can treat an eating disorder within the first two to three years of diagnosis, there is more um, there's a higher chance of recovery. So we know it's it's about up to 80% of people that have an eating disorder can recover. So um, about 50% will fully recover, uh, 30% will improve, and then there's that, you know, 20, 25% that do unfortunately remain chronically ill. But, you know, 75 mm. to, to 80% to have an improved or recovered um, from your eating disorder is, you know, it's it's not great, but it's, you know, I think it's a lot better than what people think. Yeah, that's think that, higher than I thought. Yeah. yeah. And I think that comes down to, I guess, a lot of people's assumptions about eating disorders that, you know, a lot of people think that anorexia nervosa is the most common eating disorder because that's what you see online and in the media because that has, you know, the highest mortality rate of any psychiatric um, illness that that's what you see uh, you know that's what you see online but knowing that the most sort of common eating disorders fall under that binge eating disorder and that Ausfed category that I talked about they actually have really high recovery rates um, so the, yeah that's why the statistics are, are higher than what a lot of people believe it to be mm -hmm. do you think as well that's um sort of uh people looking at someone and taking the appearance and making a conclusion about their eating based on that. And, and, you know, it's very much not, not the case. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. You're mm. so right. I think as well, you know, having that knowledge that eating disorders can affect anyone, any age, any size of any color is just so important. And I think unfortunately a lot of the funding is for, people that are of a very low weight. So, you know, people that have eating disorders, you know, that fall into those other categories. And it's unfortunate that they're the ones with, you know, some of the highest recovery rates and yet they're the ones that are most underfunded. So, you know, I think a lot of the time too, it's, you know, binge eating disorder, emotional eating, overeating, you know, often people sort of get those confused and, because binge eating disorder isn't talked about and because in the media, again, having an eating disorder at a healthy weight or any other sort of shape or size isn't, isn't portrayed and isn't talked about, I think that there's a lot of people that don't realise that they have an eating disorder and therefore they, you know, they're less likely to go and get help for it. Mm-hmm. Um sort of getting into more of the clinical side, Talia, a question that comes up a lot for us is around refeeding syndrome. There mm. still seems to be maybe some misinformation or not not cl not extreme clarity on refeeding syndrome. I guess like my you know most of nutrition <laughs> science. Yeah. Do, do you see this much in your practice? Yeah, I do because every every hospital has different refeeding protocols 
different countries have different refeeding protocols. Um, it's different for inpatient versus the community. So I can understand why as a dietitian, especially working in private practice or on a sort of general medical unit, that there is, you know, almost, yeah, this fear and confusion about what to do. Um, I think the best thing to do is look at your local policies. Um, there's definitely um, sort of online, the like NICE guidelines, Marzipan in the UK. Um, and in Australia, there's a really good toolkit um, from the National Eating Disorders Collaboration, so the Eating Disorders and Dietitian Decision-Making Tool, and it actually includes a flowchart of how to manage um, people with eating disorders and refeeding syndrome risk. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that, you know, the main thing working in private practice is that because I think assessing someone for risk of refeeding is sort of bread and butter when you work in clinical dietetics. Um, but working privately, what's so important is that you're engaging medical support. So really engaging the GP and liaising with them frequently because they're the ones that are going to have to monitor blood work and physical health status. Um, and yeah, and liaising with them to ensure that, you know, um, our patients or our clients are taking the right um, nutrition supplements while we're, you know, guiding them to, to, you know, safety in terms of refeeding risk. Mm-hmm. That's probably another great segue to the question around, um, you know, uh, multidisciplinary treatment because I hear a lot of health professionals acknowledging that um, ED treatment absolutely requires psychological support mm-hmm. as well. Um is this consistent with what you see and do you work with a, a team that offers psychological support in your practice? Yeah, so in my practice, I unfortunately, you know, I, as much as I would love for each and every one of my clients to engage with a psychologist because of finances and, you know, access to these sorts of services, um, I, I do work with a lot of clients that aren't engaging with a psychologist at the same time that I am. A lot of them are, um, I must say, but, you know, unfortunately not everyone is. Um, but definitely where I can, I always recommend that um, my clients who have an eating disorder also seek support from a psychologist. Um, but a lot of the time too, I think it, it really depends on the type of eating disorder Uh, the strength of the eating disorder, Um, because as I mentioned earlier, a lot of my clients, you know, come to see me to improve their relationship with food, which, you know, of course, in an ideal world, I would love them to see a psychologist as well. But a lot of the time also we can work through those things together. And I guess where, you know, for me personally, I've spent the last sort of four or five years upskilling um, my counselling and psychology skills um, to be able to support my clients better. Um, so when I was in Australia, I did a lot of professional development. Um, I did courses in motivational interviewing. Um, I did CBT, so cognitive behavioural therapy training. I did family-based therapy training. Um, and then more recently in the UK, um, I've just completed the Master Practitioner in Eating Disorders and Obesity. So it is a, um, a course that's actually approved by the British Psychological Society. So it was it's taken me almost a year and a half to do and it was very psychology heavy. And having done that course, it completely changed the way I work with, mm-hmm. with people. And I think that's why in eating disorders, sometimes I, I do actually forget that I'm uh, a dietitian because a lot of the work that I do and a lot of what I bring to the session is actually counselling and it's psychology-focused work. I was just going to ask you about that. So there obviously is um, some of that work that you can do still within scope and sounds yes, like it's quite pivotal to the treatment that you can provide. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, as you said, definitely have to, you know, do what's within my, my scope of practice and what I've been able to um, to learn through my professional development. Um, but, yeah, a lot of the work that I do because it's it's about behaviour change and at the end of the day, you know, as much as it is about the food, it's about someone's relationship with food. And so, you know, what you learn at university and those more clinical skills and those traditional dietetic um, learnings, you know, that's not about behaviour change. That's about more prescriptive advice, telling people what to eat, 
but I need to change how people eat and what their relationship with food is like um, and change their belief systems around food. So that's where the counselling really comes into place. Yeah, that's good. Thanks for shedding light on that, Talia. That's that's a question I've had for a while about what that might look like. Um, so I know that so you and I had a brief conversation a few weeks ago about why this is a really important discussion to be having, even for dietitians who don't necessarily specialize in eating disorders. Um, can you explain a little bit more about um, that kind of conversation we had and why? Yeah, so when we were discussing this, I sort of shared my views that because everyone has a relationship with food, it is just so important for, you know, in in my opinion, for all dietitians to really become more aware of eating disorders and disordered eating because it, it is on the rise. You know, the more and more people I speak to and definitely the people that I work with, you know, they ask me sometimes, they're like, Talia, does normal eating exist? And I have to say, yes, it does. But because online, it doesn't, it doesn't appear that way. Um, and yes, yeah, so I think normal eating, you know, whatever definition that has, it is becoming harder to find. Um, and when, you know, as dietitians, no matter if someone has an eating disorder or you work in, you know, renal disease or oncology or gut health, the person in front of you has a relationship with food and you need to be skilled enough to be able to assess that, you know, because eating disorders are on the rise. So just becoming, you know, being more aware of the sort of language to use, especially when we're talking about weight and weighing our patients. Again, that's a very sort of, you know, clinical, traditional sort of approach to weight loss. Um you know, and I think I, I mentioned this to you when we when we first had a discussion is that I, you know, when I think back to some of the advice that I gave as a new graduate dietitian, I actually cringe because I think that, you know, there's the potential that I have caused damage to someone's relationship with food, just having not been aware of how important that is in, you know, the support that we give to our, our patients and our, mm-hmm. our clients and even our friends and our family. So I think, it's just such an important area for every dietitian to upskill in. I've definitely questioned myself as well from mm. private practice days and also like mm. family advice to family and friends. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we had a great question coming from your audience as well around um, how can dietitians initially support a patient if they report to have an eating disorder, but you aren't a dietitian specializing in this area? Yeah. So I think one of the most important things really is just to be there for them and to, to listen, to not be, you know, to be non, non judgmental because a lot of the time there's so much shame and guilt and stigma around eating disorders. So if someone has the courage to open up to you, like that's huge. So firstly, I would just, you know, suggest to be there for them. And if you're not specialized in the area, I think, you know, one of your jobs really importantly is to connect them to the right service and to liaise back with their their doctor. Um, And even if you don't have sort of those high level skills working with people with eating disorders, you can still be there to support them, assessing if they're at at, uh, medical risk, so assessing if they're at risk of refeeding syndrome and providing education is also a really important first step. So, you know, you might educate them about the risks of some of the behaviours that they're engaging in. Um, You might educate them about starvation syndrome or um, the importance of balanced eating. So you can really touch on sort of those first steps at helping someone to improve their relationship with food while finding, you know, potentially um, someone that's more specialised in that area to support them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm going to touch on um, help resources a little bit later. So um, I'm sure there's a lot out there that can be accessed, kind of freely accessed on the internet. So, um, yeah, that's interesting. Are there tools that can be used in practice to screen for disordered eating? Mm, so there's um, the SCOF questionnaire. Mm-hmm. 
I've don't get me that. to <laughs> just say what, what the acronym stands for. But <laughs> yeah, so um, SCOF is the sort of um, tool that is used most commonly by GPs and in private mm-hmm. practice if you haven't got that ex- that sort of diagnostic um, experience. Yeah. Would dietitians use that tool in practice as well as GPs? Yeah, so I would I would encourage if someone isn't specialising in eating disorders, that's a really good tool to use, and I've recommended mm-hmm. it to some of my colleagues um, mm-hmm. here in the UK as well. Mm-hmm. And obviously, I imagine it's it's important for private practice dietitians to have um, a connection with another dietitian specialising in eating disorders for if they do feel like it's really important to refer on at that point. Do you think? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, ideally, that would be fantastic. And I think using the GP, um, you know, I know that in Australia now, each um, health service has an eating disorder coordinator, or definitely in New South Wales, I know that it does. Um, So being aware of how you can contact the eating disorder coordinator local to you. And that's a really great you know, go-to person um, to be able to find out what services are available or even just calling, you know, um, the the Butterfly Foundation helpline um, and the Inside Out Institute as well where, you know, they, yeah, so they they list all of the um, eating disorder practitioners, so dietitians, psychologists, even some medical professionals Mm -hmm. that have listed their service um, on that sort of help finder. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, a, a question that I really wanted to put to you, Talia, was around um, around your own mental health. I imagine this job can be quite quite draining. And uh, we actually had a question come through from our audience as well around how do you set boundaries between your own mental health and, and then the work that you do with patients with disordered eating yeah, yeah. It, it it can be quite a draining um, area to work in. I think working in, yeah, mental health. Um, so I think for me personally, I mean, you know, I must admit this is something that I continue to work on and improve. Um, but having that balance for me between the inpatient unit and my private practice, I found to take a huge load off in terms of my mental health um, because working on the inpatient unit is a bit more demanding um, and you're working with you know, patients that are more unwell and, and chronically unwell. Um, so being able to, yeah, to have that balance is really helpful for me. Um, setting boundaries in terms of emails and notifications. So I do not check my hospital email after hours. I've turned off every single notification on my phone for emails, Instagram. Um, I think the only one I have on there is is WhatsApp at the moment, which I found to be so helpful. Um, And just trying to take time out and, um, yeah, do self-care wherever you can. So definitely for me, before COVID, a lot of that was travelling and (laughs) exploring food Mm. and different cuisines. Um, So, yeah, just trying to do what you can, reaching out when you need help. Um, I see my – so I have a a dietitian supervisor who I um, see monthly as well, and I think that that for me is a non-negotiable to be able to have Mm. that, you know, that that mentor that I can debrief and go through um, casework, especially working in private practice where I don't have a team of dietitians. Mm. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, I definitely recommend that. Do you think it's important to check in with yourself regularly around, you know, how your own emotional mental health is is tracking? Yes, yes, definitely. Mm-hmm. I think, I mean, part of me thinks that, you know, working in eating disorders and mental health as a health professional, not not everyone is, I guess, suited in terms of personality or or based on sort of their own experience um so yeah I think definitely yeah checking in with yourself checking is it you know something that's suitable for you or even just the the number of you know hours that you you work in sort of these areas and and mental health so I know when I first started my supervisor at the time she was like Talia you're working full-time now in eating disorders you need to you need to make sure you have boundaries in place um, so yeah, it is just regularly checking in on yourself, taking a break when you need, um, potentially you know reducing your client load if you need to. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
you mentioned before a little bit about the additional professional development you've done. And again, this is a question that comes up a lot around um, dietitians who are aspiring to um, to work in this area. So can you give some kind of tips on courses or similar that you think are important for dietitians who want to move into this area? Yeah, so I think counselling, I I cannot say that enough for dietitians wanting to work in this area, upskilling your counselling technique, like your, your counselling skills um, and doing yeah, more psychology-based uh, learnings. So motivational interviewing I touched on before. Um, I did Fiona Willer and Fiona Sutherland's Health at Every Size course, which was so beneficial. Um, Marcy Evans in America also has some really great online courses around body image and eating disorders. Uh, if you, yeah, CBT, so cognitive behavioral therapy is really good. Um, becoming even just like um, signing up to the, the DA eating disorder interest group, they have a, a wealth of resources. Uh, Inside Out also has uh, a couple of online courses. So one is sort of the basics in eating disorders and then they have another new training course uh, for dietitians as well specifically. So that's, yeah, what I would recommend to to get started and then in terms of um job interviews for working in mm. this area any tips in that sort of sphere yeah it's so hard I get this question all the time about you know how do I get that first job in eating disorders and you know it, it is a really tricky one but I think if you can get any experience working in mental health so not necessarily eating disorders because there's definitely more jobs available in just general mental health especially if you're you're working in a a large teaching hospital or even a smaller hospital trying to keep your eye out for any any patients that you know, come on to another ward that have an eating disorder. If you really want to specialize in that area, you know, ask if you can, you know, shadow other dietitians um, and volunteer, um, get it, yeah, get in touch with, you know, other organizations like the Butterfly Foundation or Inside Out to see if there's any voluntary experience so that you, you have that bit of an edge when it comes to, you know, that interview process. Um, but I think if you can show that you're passionate in the area, that you've engaged in some professional development in that area as well. That's going to be really helpful for you. Um, and yeah, just trying to get as much experience as you can. I know that's always, you know, it's not always mm. easy. Yeah. Um, you mentioned your job at the Butterfly Foundation before. Um, yeah. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, yeah, of course. So the Butterfly, So I'm, I'm not sure if they still run this program due to funding, but when I was there, um, we ran an intensive outpatient program, which was run two evenings a week and also on a Saturday morning. And so I, yeah, I was the dietitian for the um for that program and it was just part-time. So I worked one evening a week as part of the program and my job was to assess um, new patient or clients who had been referred. And then I also did um, some nutrition education and then we'd also go out and eat at restaurants. So mm -hmm. every week I would help take the clients out and do that social eating, help to you know, normalize eating in a different environment, eating with others, normalizing those foods that, you know, that, a lot of people find quite, um, you know, it, it's really challenging for them to, to eat food out in restaurants. So that was a really enjoyable part of the job. I also ran a couple of cooking classes. Like it was, yeah, it was a really great program that was really personalized. It was um, based off the Carolyn Coston Institute, um, which is based in America. So her sort of theory around helping people recover from eating disorders. So do you, was that a good experience in the lead up to where you are now? Yes. Yeah, mm -hmm. definitely. So that experience, um, I think especially the, like the meal support that I was able to give those clients definitely helped me in my job currently. Um, cause now at the hospital, I take people out, uh, twice a week. So once for lunch, once for snack, and we go and have a social meal together. So a lot of what I learned now actually came from my work at the Butterfly Foundation. And that's when I first started running nutrition groups in eating disorders as well. 
Yeah, I had no idea that was a part of your work, take, taking people out for meals to eat together. Mm-hmm. That is, um, That sounds incredibly practical and meaningful. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And at the hospital as well, we do cooking groups. And even, you know, it's similar to the challenge. I find that it's those practical skills that are really lacking in a lot of services for eating disorders. So even in my private practice now, like today for lunch, I actually had a Zoom session at lunchtime and myself and my client made a toasted sandwich and we ate it together. So even in my private work, I'm now incorporating cooking and that meal support element because that is just so needed. Mm, yeah. Um, we had a really cute question come through from our audience around um, animal assisted therapy <laughs> in yeah. eating disorders. And you mentioned that you had ex- experienced or seen some of it. Can you tell us about what this looks like? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, pet therapy is, I guess, a, a newer sort of therapy that's available, um, especially in mental health. At my hospital before COVID, we had, um, yeah, we had pet therapy. So we had a couple of dogs come into the hospital every week. And it was honestly the highlight um, for a lot of our patients because I guess what the findings are around pet therapy is that it really helps to engage um, sort of that social connection. Um, it brings more meaning into um, a patient's admission. It helps to sort of de-escalate. Uh, emotions so that helping with emotional regulation um you know patients feel like they can really connect with the animals and it you know it, it helps to to calm them down and there's just you know there's actually a lot of benefits so a lot of yeah units are starting to bring in pet therapy that is really cool <laughs> yeah <laughs> but you can just like you can imagine how nice that is when yeah you know to have something soft and cuddly that you can yeah can pat and play with uh, I think another question that I would love to put to you is around um, what you want to see change or think might change in treatment for eating disorders in the future. Mm. I think there's going to be a big shift to online services and I think the pandemic has proved that online services can be really beneficial to people with eating disorders, um, especially you know, the reach that that can now provide. So people that are living in remote and regional areas. Um, I think there's also a shift towards residential treatment. And I know that in Australia, you know, up in Queensland, I think um, a new residential facility is almost, well, it's, it's finished being built, but I think they've had some some funding issues. Um, so I think that's definitely way that treatment is moving towards in the future. And I think more support at, in the home. So I think what what a lot of services are trying to do at the moment is to get people out of the inpatient setting because it can be quite traumatic. Um, people can become quite institutionalised when they're patients for you know um, for many months at a time. So really moving care back into the patient's home, um, and I hope personally that we will be able to offer more practical skills like the cooking and the meal support. Mm, and you've kind of already started a, a really lovely kind of shift in in treatment through what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. Maybe I've started something. We'll see. <laughs> I think so. I'm sure there's lots of dietitians <laughs> listening to this who'll get some um, really great ideas on on you know how they could potentially change or where they could move their practice based on your yeah, yeah your great ideas. Um, yeah. So we should wrap up soon. Um, I, I love putting this question to guests and I'm really keen to hear what you what your answer is around, um, you know, what's kind of one or two things you really want dietitians to remember or take away from this conversation um, when it comes to working in eating disorders. Yeah. So I think, I think just knowing that, you know, everyone has a relationship with food and eating disorders can affect anyone so as I said affect anyone from any shape size age gender race Um, so it's really important not to make assumptions about someone's relationship with food or their body when they come to see you Uh, and then I think secondly is that as you know as frightening or as um 
I guess confronting working in mental health and eating disorders might appear, especially if you're a new grad or, um, you know, wanting to change career paths, that working in eating disorders can just be one of the most rewarding areas to work in. And there's such a strong eating disorder dietitian community. I've made so many connections since moving to the UK and maintaining connection, connections back at home in Australia. And, you know, eating disorders are on the rise, um, so just yeah, just having those those skills available to you will be will be so helpful in any area of dietetics that you choose mm-hmm. to work in. Mm-hmm. And thank you for mentioning all of those help resources. We'll list them on the show notes. Um, were there any other help resources that came to mind for dietitians, um, or you know, if if they're helping individuals with eating disorders that they can access? Yeah, I think uh, some of the others that I didn't mention was the Center for Clinical Innovation. So CCI um, is in Western Australia in Perth. They have amazing resources, not just about food, um, but also about body image and and exercise. Um, The dietitians at uh, RPA created the the real food pyramid. So it's the um, eating disorders food pyramid. Um, which is a really helpful resource for dietitians that are starting to work in the area as well. Um, and yeah, I think, yeah, like NZ, so the Australia, New Zealand um, Eating Disorders Association is a good one to, to have a look at as well. And I know there's um, a lot of great dietitians that yeah. are behind the initiatives there and sort of leading the way. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And um, most importantly, how can dietitians connect with you? Yep, so you can connect with me on Instagram. So my handle is TC Nutrition. Very easy. Um, nice yes, and easy. very easy because <laughs> when I try and say my website is taliachikelli.com, <laughs> then I have to learn how to spell it. So best way to go and find me is on Instagram and then connect through there. And the, your website on your Instagram profile. Yeah, yeah. Lovely. Hey, Talia, thank you so much for sitting down with me today. It has been wonderful to talk with you. You are a wonderful person and seem to be doing super meaningful, impactful change as a dietitian. Thank you so much, Kate. It's been an absolute pleasure to come on here. To get all of the links and resources we discussed through this episode, you can go to dietitianconnection.com slash podcasts. And if you'd like to support the Dietitian Connection podcast, please leave a review for us and a rating on the Apple Podcast app. Tell us what you thought about this episode, what you learned, and share your guest requests for us to consider for future episodes. We really value hearing from you and we really value your feedback. So please, please hit that review button.